Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This is the Dmitry Donskoy Overture. It's a Russian opera written almost 200 years ago, and it tells the tale of the Battle of Kulikovo. It's a David and Goliath kind of story of a real battle that was fought in 1380 when the Russian people were living under Mongolian rule, and they had been for a century since they were conquered. The Russians were fighting back, trying to reclaim their homeland, but they were hugely outnumbered. 50,000 Russian warriors challenged 150,000 Tartar Mongolians. It looked like they didn't stand a chance. But Russian Prince Dmitry Donskoy had a plan. He hid one of his army regiments in a nearby forest. And just when it seemed the battle was lost, the Russians launched a surprise attack and clutched victory from the jaws of defeat. The Battle of Kulikovo is sometimes referred to as the birth of the Russian nation. It marked the first step towards Russian independence. And that Russian prince who led the battle, Dmitry Donskoy, and his tactics, that surprise attack from the forest, also spawned a new Russian military doctrine that still exists today. It's known as Maskerovka. The word in Russian literally means masking, to disguise or camouflage. Essentially, it's the Russian art of deception. And it's designed, quite simply, to keep adversaries permanently off balance. I'm Jeff Semple, the Europe Bureau Chief for Global News, and this is Russia Rising. On this episode, we'll explore the concept of Maskarovka, a centuries-old Russian military strategy that's recently evolved into a political weapon. It's a way to confuse, it's a way to delay others' reactions. And it stretches across the entire engagement with fake news, hybrid warfare, cyber uh, warfare, um, and also military engagement. So it's a very clever use of misinformation in pursuit of uh, national strategic objectives. In the age of fake news, social media, and countless online alternative sources of news, it can feel difficult, even impossible, to separate fact from fiction particularly when you consider how traditional mainstream news organizations are also under attack, having their credibility questioned and undermined, leaving a lot of people wondering whom they can trust. And it's in this context that Maskarovka, the ancient Russian art of deception, has taken on new meaning and a new purpose. As a Canadian correspondent based in Europe, I do a lot of reporting on Russia. And I first came across this word, Maskarovka, as both a military and a political strategy a few years ago, after the annexation of Crimea in Ukraine. And the more I looked into it, the more I realized Maskarovka had this incredible history. 
As I mentioned, it began as a Russian military strategy 600 years ago. But in modern times, the rest of the world really started to take notice during the Second World War. The Red Army burst the Iron Ring encircling the city, which refused to give in. Now, Maskarovka involves a few key ingredients. First, you need the element of surprise. And during the Second World War, the Soviets became famous for their surprise attacks. The Red Army deployed dozens of fake inflatable tanks and would send them in false directions just to confuse the Nazis. Operation Bagration in the summer of 1944 was arguably the most successful Soviet operation of the whole war. The goal was to liberate Belarusia from Nazi control. The Soviets had sent troops as decoys in different directions at once, and they attacked from multiple locations, with the biggest strike coming not from the road, as the Germans had expected, but from the swamp, where the Soviets had secretly built a wooden pathway from which to launch the surprise attack. Now, that Soviet victory marked one of the Nazis' largest intelligence failures of the war, with half a million casualties on the German side. And it opened the door to the Allies reclaiming Western Ukraine, the Baltics, and Poland. And this was just the latest in a string of operations that cemented the Soviets' reputation as masters of military deception. Ladies and gentlemen, the Prime Minister. Even British Prime Minister Winston Churchill, who had long been a fierce opponent of the Soviet communists, heaped praise on the Red Army. Not only have the Hun invaders been driven from the lands they had ravaged, but the guts of the German army have been largely torn out by Russian valor and generalship. But fast forward 60 years, and a much more recent example of Maskarovka has pitted Britain and its allies against Russia. It is totally unacceptable that there are Russian soldiers on Ukrainian soil. Russia's invasion of eastern Ukraine and annexation of Crimea in 2014 caught just about everyone by surprise. And Crimea also served as an example of the second key ingredient of Maskarovka, disguise. There's got to be some way of disguising or camouflaging your actions and intentions. And in the case of Russia's annexation of Crimea, there were the so-called little green men. Remember those guys? Dressed in unmarked military uniforms. They were heavily armed and suddenly started appearing on the Black Sea Peninsula, seemingly overnight and out of nowhere. They were first spotted arriving in unmarked military trucks, and they quickly took control of Crimea's parliament and its borders. Now, at the time, they claimed to be local defense forces, patriotic volunteers who wanted Crimea to separate from Ukraine and join Russia. And as these troops were taking control of Crimea, Russian President Vladimir Putin was asked at a press conference whether these little green men were actually Russian soldiers. 
This is nonsense. There are no Russian armed forces anywhere in the east of Ukraine. All these people are local citizens. And there are many different military uniforms. Go into any shop and you can find one. But Putin later admitted that Russian forces had, in fact, been deployed to Ukraine. Well, that was a perfect example of Maskirovka keeping the surrounding um, countries in some sort of doubt of as to what was going on until the point when the military operation had been completed. That's Rasmus Nilsson, an expert in Russian politics and foreign policy at the University College London. It's a way to confuse, it's a way to delay others' reactions. And he says in Ukraine, it worked like a charm. You then have information coming out from Russia saying this has nothing to do with us, this is a local initiative which should be supported based on local self-determination. Now, while everybody was in the world was trying to debate is that actually what's happening in Crimea, the Russian state had managed to fly in so many troops um, under this guise that they could then afterwards say, well, actually, we did it, and what are you going to do about it? It was simply a delaying tactic, gave them perhaps a week extra, which in this case was hugely important. Which brings us to the third key ingredient of Maskerovka, which lately has been getting a lot of attention. A campaign of disinformation. To cover the traces of Russian state activity. That's Julian Lindley French. He's a historian and security analyst with a number of different think tanks and universities in Europe and North America, including the Canadian Global Affairs Institute. After the annexation of Crimea in 2014, Lindley French was invited to brief NATO leaders about the rise of what he calls strategic Maskerovka. What I've done is, is, is I've observed what is a culture of deception which was traditionally used by Russia on the battlefield, now being applied across its statecraft. Lindley French says that each time the West accuses Moscow of behaving badly, the Kremlin responds not only with denials, but also by promoting numerous different theories and possible explanations. For example, remember flight MH17? A Malaysian Airlines jet flying from Amsterdam to Kuala Lumpur appears to have been shot down over eastern Ukraine. In 2014, just a few months into the war in eastern Ukraine, the passenger plane was shot down, killing all 298 people on board. It did crash in the eastern part of the country where this ongoing conflict has been uh, taking place. A team of international investigators concluded that the weapon responsible was a Russian-made Buke missile supplied by Russia's 53rd Anti-Aircraft Brigade in the Russian city of Kursk. The investigative team provided images, video, and an animation of the convoy carrying the Buke missile arriving from Russia into Ukraine. And today they said finally that they could unequivocally confirm that this was a Russian missile. But not only did Russia fiercely deny those accusations, a revolving door of Russian leaders, officials, and broadcasters responded by offering dozens of different alternative explanations. From Russia you've got a um, dozen, several dozen scores of different stories about how the, what other things might have happened including quite outlandish theories. 
for instance, that an airplane would have been loaded with already dead people and that the Ukrainian airplanes would then have shot it down to make it look as if Russia was shooting down passenger airplanes. I mean, there were tons of these stories going around, quite a few of them coming from official Russian sources, say Ministry of Defense, presidential spokesperson, so on and so forth. And they were not supposed to be taken seriously. They were simply supposed to occupy the attention span of the world for a while, to the extent that, that everybody would sort of lose track of the original explanation, which turned out to be quite the right one. And we saw a similar Russian response after the British government accused the Kremlin of poisoning former spy Sergei Skripal in England last year. First, Russian officials claimed the poison was not the nerve agent Novichuk. Then they said that Russia didn't possess it. Later, they suggested it might have come from Sweden or the Czech Republic, or even from Britain's own defense lab, which is located just a short distance from the crime scene. Russia's foreign minister even suggested that the UK government might have carried out the attempted assassination to distract the British public from Brexit. Edward Lucas is a Russian expert at the Center for European Policy Analysis. The main thing is distract, spray as many different conspiracy theories and alternative explanations as possible. So people think, well, we don't really know what's going on. There's just lots and lots of versions and who's know what the facts are. And Lindley French says that spreading those alternative theories has never been easier, thanks to the internet. The social media sphere has created opportunities that a few years ago Russia would never have dreamed of. One prominent example of that power of disinformation, a chemical weapons attack in Syria in April of 2017 that killed dozens, including many children. Witnesses talk about people choking and fainting after the early morning airstrike. An investigation by the UN and the world's chemical weapons watchdog blamed that attack on the Russian-backed Syrian government. But social media was busy telling a much different story. The hashtag Syria hoax became a worldwide Twitter trend, used hundreds of thousands of times to promote the Kremlin's theory that the attack was faked. A lot of articles generated by pro-Kremlin media took took this hashtag and uh, ran with it. Lucas Andriukaitis is with the Atlantic Council's Digital Forensic Research Lab, which tracks fake news online. They found the Syria hoax hashtag followed a familiar pattern. It was started by a website that fiercely supports the Syrian regime, and it was then picked up, retweeted, and promoted over and over by pro-Kremlin websites and Twitter accounts. If they see a hashtag which is, uh, you know, telling the narrative they want to see, they uh, focus a lot of media effort and bot effort and even troll effort to, to, to push it forward. He says that narrative is then repeated by Russian officials and on Russian TV. One of the ways to, to promote the, the, the hashtag is, uh, is to use uh, all the pro-Kremlin media outlets, such as Sputnik and RT. RT. Formerly known as Russia Today, is a Kremlin-funded TV network that's broadcast outside of Russia to more than 100 countries, including Canada. Good evening to you. This is RT International. 
RT covers many of the same stories as the traditional North American news media, but through a much different lens. RT is a challenger brand. You know, we're showing a different picture of the world, the one that sometimes very much contradicts of what they're used to seeing. Anna Belkina is the deputy editor of RT. I met her at the network's headquarters in Moscow, where she gave me a tour behind the scenes. In many ways, it looks like your typical TV newsroom. Rows of computers, with mostly young adults in their 20s and early 30s, scanning the wires and furiously typing away. And at the far end of the room is the TV studio, where a news anchor is looking into a large studio camera, reading a teleprompter, and explaining the latest controversy surrounding U.S. President Donald Trump. The sticking point is funding for Donald Trump's border wall. The graphics and the presentation all look pretty slick. And just a short walk down the hall, we open a door to another newsroom with another TV studio. This one for RT's Arabic-language news channel. RT offers programming in several languages. It's become the most popular global news network on YouTube, with around 7 billion online views. And while audience numbers for many traditional TV networks have been shrinking for years, RT's TV audience has grown by a third in just a couple of years. Now, to be clear, its TV audience is still only a fraction of the size of the big international networks like CNN or BBC. But Belkina says that their growth reflects a growing appetite for a different perspective. What we've really seen is kind of a monopoly on the international news media stage. Uh, you saw just a handful, you know, really two, three uh, global news broadcasters that were showing the same stories that were highlighting the same voices, uh, the same perspectives. And um, we understood that that's not really uh, the reality. It does not accurately reflect the reality of what's going on in the world. And there's no disputing that RT offers a different reality. At times, it can seem like a parallel universe from the one being covered by North American TV networks. RT is funded by the Kremlin, though Belkina insists that her network is just as independent as the BBC, for example, which of course is funded by the British government. But unlike the BBC, RT is rarely critical of its own government or its president, Vladimir Putin. And its coverage often reflects the Kremlin's view of global events. For example, the British broadcaster Ofcom recently ruled that RT broke the UK's rules several times during its coverage of the poisoning of former spy Sergei Skripal, accused of overtly biased coverage. After weeks of media hysterics and official claims without a shred of evidence, the case that Russia was behind the Salisbury poisoning incident is falling apart. The United States intelligence agencies have called RT a Kremlin-directed campaign to undermine faith in the U.S. government, and RT's American arm was forced to register as a foreign agent. Now, I'll admit I'm not a regular RT viewer, but after spending a few days watching on YouTube, I quickly noticed a few things. On one hand, it's not like they're inventing their own stories or their own facts. I mean, for the most part, they're reporting the news. 
However, some of their stories are clearly being spun in the Kremlin's favor. Take the Russian-backed Syrian president Bashar al-Assad, for example. Instead of a brutal dictator who's accused of using chemical weapons against his own people, he's portrayed on RT as a victim of a Western plot. RT supports these stories by interviewing so-called independent experts, like British blogger Vanessa Beely, for example. Beely has previously suggested that a terrorist attack that killed 12 people at Charlie Hebdo magazine in Paris was staged. And she said that the BBC also faked a chemical weapons attack in Syria. Vanessa Beely's joining us, an independent researcher and photographer, literally just back from a fact-finding mission in Syria. Beely first visited Syria in 2016, and she claimed that an alleged chemical weapons attack by the Syrian regime was a hoax. After that, she quickly became a regular contributor on RT. Her articles were even submitted as evidence by Russia's representative to the United Nations. Now, Beely declined Global News' request for an interview, saying she has zero trust in mainstream channels. Well, back at RT, Belkina argues that many mainstream networks are equally guilty of cherry-picking their own interview subjects to support their own beliefs. We turn on the likes of CNN and BBC and see uh, reporters, uh, see voices, experts on there uh, that have claimed, for example, that the Malaysian uh, jet that disappeared over the South Pacific was hijacked on the orders of, of President Putin. Pretty much anything goes uh, in the uh, mainstream Western media as long as, again, it fits within, within that mainstream narrative. Now, it's hard to deny that there's blame on both sides of the media landscape. CNN really did interview a so-called expert who claimed that Putin might be responsible for the missing airline MH370 without offering a shred of evidence to support that claim. But Lindley French from the Canadian Global Affairs Institute says the Kremlin's propaganda strategy is unique. Normally politicians lie simply to kind of uh, prevent the next bad, bad headline from, from appearing or to preserve the next week in peace. This is the applied systematic strategic use of disinformation in pursuit of national strategic objectives over time and distance. This is systematic. The strategy isn't necessarily about changing people's minds, he says, but rather its goal is to create confusion, to sow doubt in the official narrative, to the point where finding the truth can feel like looking for a needle in a haystack of lies. Remember that chemical weapons attack in Syria in 2017 that killed dozens of people? Well, the UN investigated that attack. So, too, did the world's chemical weapons watchdog, the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons. Here's the lead UN investigator, Edmond Mulet. We engage with uh, experts, with scientists, with independent uh, laboratories, with uh, ballistic experts, with munition experts, with chemists. Uh, so this was, every single case was analyzed and uh, was uh, challenged, was corroborated, every single bit of information we received in order to come to, this, uh, to these conclusions. And their conclusion was that the Syrian military was responsible for that attack. 
Much of their evidence is published online, and the story was widely covered in the mainstream press. But a quick search online can also find tens of thousands of articles and hundreds of thousands of tweets claiming that attack was faked. There's still many questions about the samples that the OPCW have analyzed. As well as reports produced by RT. The Russians are pushing, at, to some extent, at an open door. Uh, people in Western Europe uh, and elsewhere in the West trust their own governments less than they perhaps once did. And again, that opens an opportunity for those skilled in the dark arts of Maskirovka to ply their trade. For Curious Cast and Global News, this is Russia Rising, an investigative series from me, Jeff Semple, to unravel the mystery of today's Russia. If you liked what you heard, you can help spread the word by rating, reviewing, and subscribing for free now at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and every other app where you get your streaming audio. We can also be found at CuriousCast.ca. Next time, we'll explore a place where Canadians, Americans, and Russians work together in near-perfect harmony and literally trust each other with their lives. I'm talking about the final frontier. Space, that is. Specifically, the International Space Station, which has long been heralded as a beacon of geopolitical cooperation. But that could soon be about to change. It's in your face when you see this one planet floating in the middle of deadly vacuum of space. You cannot help but feel like you are more than a Canadian or an American or a Russian. You are a human. You're an Earthling. We'll ask a Canadian spaceman for his take on the politics and militarization of space. That's next time on Russia Rising. If you have a question or want to know more, Follow me on Twitter at JeffSempleGN or email me at RussiaRising at CuriousCast.ca. And be sure to check out the show notes for more information about what you heard today. Russia Rising is written and hosted by me, Jeff Semple. Dila Velezquez is our story producer, and sound design is by Rob Johnston. Thanks for listening, and join us next time for Russia Rising. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone. Like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.